catching up on my New York history. Uh, after five years, I guess it's time to meddle in it a little bit. I was told there's a boot statue in Saratoga. Is anyone familiar with that? A monument uh, to a boot and a leg. Well, there you go. Um, it was dedicated to what is said the most brilliant soldier in the Continental Army. And some of you already know who that is. Uh, if he had died in that battle, his name would have probably been in etched, engraved in that monument. But instead, you have to do a little bit more reading to find out that it was Benedict Arnold. His name carries a, a level of weight. Now, I know some of you who are not from this side of the pond, uh, <laughs> like big deal. <laughs> For those of us here raised up, his name is not uh, known to be one of valor or his military prowess or any of the other accomplishments, which he had many, but his name is synonymous with traitor, being sold out, uh, infamous, if you will, for uh, conspiring for a, a sum of money, whatever that sum of money was. His price was cheap, and his name lives on not as the most brilliant soldier in the Continental Army, but as one who, who is a, a traitor, a moral failure. Of course, history is filled with examples like that, but there is no one more prominent in all of human history, I would say, than that of what we find in our text this uh, morning, and that is of Judas Iscariot. Uh, Iscariot m may simply just have a reference to where he's from, the, the region he and his father is from. They both have that same surname. Uh, whether or not that's what Iscariot means, it's something that they carry. And even as the gospel writers mention him early on, uh, they make that reference. His name is known with the one who betrayed Jesus. Just in case you missed the fact early on in the ministry of Jesus, uh, of Jesus' ministry, this Judas is the very same Judas who would betray him. Well, uh, as you come to John chapter number 13, it almost seems like a break in between verse 17 and verse number 34. In fact, you could really read those verses together. Jesus had given his disciples an example of love and serving one another. And then he says, I give you a new commandment. Uh, that you have loved or that you love one another, you actively care and minister to one another. And yet in the midst of that section, you have this kind of troubling of Jesus's spirit uh, and this story of, uh, of really his betrayal. That there's one among them who is not of them, who is not with them. And, and while it may seem to be a departure in some ways, it is a needed departure because this is something that the disciples will find out for themselves. And in this, we see something, something of Jesus himself. Uh, it does expose for us Judas, and we'll look at that uh, in just, uh, we'll look at that in the process of this passage, but it exposes to us our Savior. And I think in a, a unique and marvelous way. Uh, and, and in that, I think it offers us some encouragement as well as maybe even uh, some of us a warning. So look at it with me, beginning in verse number 18 as we work down through this. And I'm just going to read from verse 18 down to uh, verse 21 and uh, consider first, Jesus knows and predicts he will be betrayed. Now, I know that's not very catchy, uh, but it's just simply explaining what I want to, uh, I think he's trying to capture for us. Verse number 18, it already Wash their feet. He's, he's already reminding them they're clean, but not all of them are clean. And that's what he's getting at at verse number 18. Uh, and he, he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his hill against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Uh, there's 
in the text implied, at least in the sense of Jesus knows and predicts his betrayal, that he is very familiar with the men whom he's chosen, the very fact that he chose them. He reminds them earlier on, did not I choose you? You didn't choose me. I'm sovereign over this. I brought you in to this close proximity to me. Even the devil, he mentions earlier in the gospel, I chose you all that scripture may be fulfilled. So he has this, uh, there's this declaration that I know all of you. Well, familiar with who you are and who I've brought into my, I'm familiar with Peter who shoots off at the mouth, except in this instance, he's a little slow to speak, isn't he? It picks back up at the end of the chapter. We'll get to that. But, but he's reminding us that he knows whom he has chosen. He has chosen them, but they are not all the same. Secondly, it reminds us, at least by way of just what is implied here, that he knows what's in the heart of man. You and I can be easily deceived. Uh, it doesn't take much, really, to fool me. Uh, and I don't say that braggingly. I'm just not always the sharpest knife in the drawer. And, and so there is this idea we don't always know what's going on the inside. The beautiful thing about preaching and looking at you is you may be having pain and I maybe think you're mad at me. Well, you know, who knows what's going on in your mind? I, sometimes it's easier to read than other times, but Jesus doesn't have that problem. In fact, what we find early on in chapter number two, that after Jesus had done so many miracles and, uh, and many people flooded to him to be his disciples, it says Jesus didn't believe in them because he knew what was in man and John chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. So he knows them, he chose them, he knows what is in, in them. And the third thing I think worth noting here, at least by way of entering into this, he knows exactly what's going to take place. He's not moving into the darkness in the sense of he is he's oblivious to all the things that's going around him. He is well aware of what lays ahead of him. He doesn't go to the upper room with some novel idea that after this he'll go to Jerusalem, present himself, and he'll be received as the king or or that all of his fathers will be close to him during this whole process in which he's going to go through. He knows that his time is short, and he knows that his disciples will flee from him. He knows that one among them is not really of them or with him. He knows what he is facing. There's a good reminder just to think about Jesus knowing the events of his earthly journey, his betrayal, the, the cross, all that he would uh, he would face, isn't it a modern application that he knows exactly what's going on at this moment? That knowledge is still present with him as he knows what's in your heart and what's in your mind? More than just the fact of what you're thinking as I'm sitting here speaking to you and as the Holy Spirit moves around us and works in us, more than just that, he knows exactly what's going on in your life at this very moment. In fact, more than that, he knows what you will face tomorrow. Isn't that what we sing when we take communion? Uh, because he lives, we can face tomorrow. Why? Not because he's trying to figure out tomorrow with us, as some liberal theologies have sought to teach, that he is on a, a mission to, to explore what's ahead of you just like you are. It's a process, and things are continually becoming just... Just like your life is continually unfolding, so God's understanding and knowledge is continually unfolding. It's a great big mystery and journey together. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. He has declared the end from the very beginning. He knows what's going on in our life. I don't know about you, but that offers some great encouragement to me. And that is meant to offer encouragement to you. Because while in the sense of the unknown, we live in fear and we feel the weight of anxiety and all that, the answer to that is found in a, a Savior, in a God who is, who is not with those same limitations. Would you agree with that? He, he, he's not living on the same plane you and I are living in. He knows exactly what's going on in our lives. Now this, of course, as we understand the Bible, his own denial uh, is expected we find several old testament passages one here in psalms 41 9 quoted for us that he would be betrayed that he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me 
course, the Old Testament, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, another reference to Jesus being sold for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, not only does he know all these events would uh, unfold, he is aware of who it is that would betray him. It's not a shot in the dark, and he's not making a guess. He knows who it is. Now, I know that there is something interesting in uh, in this reality of Jesus as our Savior in this experience of his life where one of his close companions betrays him. And I think sometimes we miss this, but we shouldn't. Because some of you have experienced something, not to the same degree, of course, but you have experienced the pain and the hurt and the and the trouble that comes along with someone that is ate with you, that has, has fellowship with you, someone that you have discipled, many of you that disciple other people, you've poured into them, you've, you've cared about them, you've prayed for them, you've, you've given to them, you've been over backwards, you, you would have plucked out one of your eyes and gave to them, to use Paul's terminology, just, just to see their good and their well-being, all at the end of the day to be, to be discarded or to be bitten or to be gone against. And I want to remind you that in, in, in those experiences, and maybe you live that even in your own family as your own children, sometimes can bring about a greater harm than those who are outside of your family. And God has reminded us we have a faithful high priest who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And that in him who's experienced these things, even to a greater degree without sin, is able to give us strength and encouragement when we face these things. What David experienced hardly could be imagined by, by what Christ experienced. We might even say with David and his son Absalom or his, his greatest uh, ally and counselor whose, whose voice and counsel was like the very word of God who turned against him to go after Absalom. And we could say at that as we read that, well, he had it coming. But what of Jesus of Nazareth? God incarnate who walked this earth and called men unto himself and displayed such, such grace and glory and miracles. And, and then you see a Jesus in himself, sinless in, in all of his actions, in, in all of his deeds, in this close community that he's called together and a, a fellowship, really a, a bond or a band of brothers. Friends who committed himself and been sent out by Jesus, who preached the gospel together and, and who cast out demons, all of them. There, there's no exception, we, we think, among the twelve that was sent out to preach and, and, and show these signs and cast out demons. And, and, and as they went out, Jesus looks to them and let's build such a fellowship and he says to them with such bold words, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. The Bible says in verse 21, he begins this declaration with Jesus being troubled in spirit, the idea of being anxious or, or, or agitated in spirit. Same word used later on in verse number 14 of the disciples who are troubled because the, Jesus is going to leave them. His presence are going to, is going to be gone from them. His physical presence will be gone from them and their hearts are overwhelmed with the thought. And here Jesus thinking about his own, thinking about the moment and the things that he's faced. And the Bible says he is, he is troubled. He's troubled in spirit. What do you think about a Jesus that's presented to us in such a, a real form? Raw. One that feels. Expressing his feeling, the idea of troubled or, or the expression here is one of a, it, it was shown on his countenance. And sometimes I think we fall into that old stoic idea of God who is up there unmoved and untouched by worldly affairs and by our choices and actions. Uh, the only passion that he seems to have is the passion of anger and judgment. Is that not how sometimes we view God? And yet when we come to the Gospels and we see this vision of 
God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are reminded of one who who lives and loves, who feels deeply and and who really is a faithful high priest for us. Well, not only do we see this Jesus who knows, we notice the disciples who themselves, uh, we notice the disciples and, and really the disguise. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 21, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So from a troubled Jesus to a troubled group, that's what's going on here. And remarkably, Peter's not the first one that pipes up and says anything. And it's amazing, isn't it, at the words of one of you will betray me, that the people in turn respond, the other gospel accounts recorded for us, uh, this statement, is it I, Lord? That the very notion that someone could have betrayed Jesus and the very thought that one among them Am I the one that would do such a thing? I often wondered if Judas asked that. Years ago, many years ago, I received a letter um, in between Sunday school and and church starting uh, and hadn't been pastoring very long, maybe a year and a half, two years, something like that. And and the deacon said, oh, you got a letter in the mail. You give me a letter. And um, so I opened the letter, and it was from an anonymous source who simply signed a servant of God. I didn't know at that time if they uh, didn't sign their name, you probably shouldn't read the letter. And so I read it um, every word probably three times before I was to get up and preach. Uh, For several pages, I read the outpouring of contempt, among several other things. I wouldn't go into the details of what was being said for me and 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 a lot of other things uh, as this godly servant was trying to straighten things out. You can imagine when it was my turn to get up and stand in front of the congregation what I was thinking. Which one of you? Actually, I almost want to be like, <laughs> I almost want to say, I have this note in the back. Sign, uh, uh, sign your name at the end of it so I could match handwriting to see who in the world would send me this. Who was it? And the whole service, as it was, uh, my world was a little bit upside down at the moment, I was thinking to myself, surely it isn't so-and-so. Surely Ed didn't write that letter. Or Jim. I mean, you can't hardly read their writing. It was more flowery. It had to be a woman. You know, surely surely it wasn't this person. That person. That's the very thing going on in the disciples' mind at this point. Who would betray Jesus? Who would offer the Son of God up to his enemies? Well, Peter motions, so Peter wasn't sitting next to Jesus. Probably, say the table was set in a horseshoe fashion, maybe he was sitting over to the side. Jesus being at the center of the table, he would have a right and left-hand side. John appears to be on the right side of Jesus, that kind of seat of honor. He's referred to here as the disciple whom Jesus loved. What an endearing term, almost in contrast to the disciple who spurned Jesus' love. And so Peter, whatever had John's attention, said, ask him who it is. Let's let's find out. You want to know who would betray Jesus. And so we see John leaning over in hushed tones, laying back on Jesus. They did some kind of thing of laying down while they ate. Seems odd to me, but nevertheless, different culture. And he asks Jesus, and Jesus answers him, and it's remarkable that he doesn't say it openly. You know, when Jesus, uh, uh, when Peter rebuked Jesus and says, quit saying you're going to die, he pulled him over to the side and said, we don't want a Messiah that's dying. Quit that stuff. Jesus turns and rebukes him openly to the rest, in front of the rest. He said, we're not having this stuff. He put an end to it. And yet in this moment in the upper room, the disciples gathered. He must have answered John quietly, at least in low tones where no one else could hear it. Because when Judas left, no one thought, oh, it's Judas, did they? 
In fact, Jesus tells John, he doesn't even give Jesus his name. He says, who is it, Lord, who is it? Verse 25 and verse 26, it is he to whom I will give this morsel or sop of bread, whatever uh, your uh, translation says there, when I have dipped it. And so he turns and gives the bread to Judas. Now, I want to just give a, a, a brief, and there's not much known of Judas other than what we can uh, glean through the pages of Scripture. And I just want to give a, a brief, maybe a, a, a view of Judas, who he is, might be helpful. And the first of uh, that we know of Judas is that he was one of them. He was one of the twelve. Uh, he he was mentioned along with the other eleven, verse Number three, or verse number 19 of Mark 3 and several other places where the 12 apostles are mentioned, uh, those who followed Jesus in a, in a particular unique role, and he was among the inner 12, the, the close companions of Jesus. Uh, again, Iscariot could refer, uh, refer to some region he is from. I think Sinclair Ferguson said it, it may have some connection to, to a dagger or, or being a zealot. That's why he's mentioned with Simon the Zealot and in Mark's account, so there's close. Maybe they both were, let's liberate uh, uh, from Rome. Maybe that. Uh, there's debate against that. We don't really know. And we don't know when Judas actually started following Jesus. It must have been early on in Jesus' ministry. So we, we don't know where, he's, uh, where he comes in at, but we do know by all accounts he was one of them. Scripture makes that very clear that he was one of the twelve. So we got that? The second thing worth noting is that he was trusted by them. That's very clear by the fact that he was the treasurer. Uh, They gave him the bag of money, and we've made jokes about that before. You don't give the guy the money that's known to be a thief or a gambler or somebody who's going to squander it. Uh, You just don't do that. That's not the people you look for. In fact, you look for people who have a competency and ability to take take, uh, care of that and and would not steal from that. So he was trusted by them. He showed some sense uh, about him, a good account uh, around others. Uh, There was something about, and you would think, wouldn't you, if you had a treasurer, it'd be the tax collector, wouldn't it? Are you kidding me? God saved him out of all that. You don't want to put him back in that temptation of stealing, so let's pick somebody else. So they picked Judas. He was trustworthy, responsible, at least from the disciples' perspective. There was no reason to think there was something going on in Judas's life where he could not be trusted. The third thing we know about Judas, and this is true about the others, he was gifted. <clears throat> now by gifted, I don't mean specifically in the fact that he was able to count money and knew how much a bottle of perfume cost, though he did know that readily on hand. And we know why he knew that, because he was also an opportunist. We'll look at that in a moment. But he was gifted. He was sent out to preach the gospel effectively casting out demons and all the other stuff that the other disciples carried on. I want to remind you, no measure of giftedness has ever secured our eternal state. Isn't that a good lesson to learn from the life of Judas? It doesn't matter how elegant you can speak. It doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how gifted you are in many areas that, and, and the many things or talents that you, that you have Unless you're willing to let all those things go and trust Christ and Christ alone, then you're no more than Judas, at least in this regard. He was gifted. He was trusted by others. And he was one of them. But then you start to see a contrast of Judas and that of John and the rest of them. He was only in form with Jesus, but not in substance. Jesus, earlier on in the Gospel of John, refers to his 12 disciples after he says, will you go also? Uh, and John chapter number 6, and, and he said, where will we go? And he says, I have not I called you, and one of you is a devil. And all I, I mean to say by that, in, in reference to that, is Jesus knew all the way from the beginning who Judas was and what he was filled with, and it wasn't Christ. 
It wasn't faith or devotion. He was only in form a disciple. He was only in, in form or, or in show, in some outward presence, in, in some temporary state uh, affiliated with Christ and his followers, but he was not truly one of them. Not in the, in the way in which it counts. In fact, he demonstrates the rebuke that Jesus gave towards the leaders. You honor me with your lips, but your heart, that which is truly you, is far from me. And, and Judas displays that. And isn't that remarkable when it seems that he almost passed the test, when all the disciples are fleeing away from Jesus and all the crowd is going away, he sticks with him. And yet he's still not of him. Receiving life from him is only a shell of a man, is only a show and, and not the real thing. In fact, he is, the, he is the, the great picture, the demonstration, the illustration of a hypocrite, isn't it? One who wears a mask. The fifth thing we note about Judas, not only was he only in form with Jesus, but not in substance, he was an opportunist. That's not wrong in itself, is it? That's when you're supposed to say no. We like opportunities to get ahead. But this seems to be his, his motto. In fact, we see this earlier on in chapter number 12 as he rebukes this, this woman who breaks this year's worth salary jar of perfume. And, and what is he rebuke her? Because that could have been given to money me and i could have given it to the poor actually he's thinking i'm poor and i could give it to myself that's what he's thinking isn't it <clears throat> isn't it remarkable the only time we hear judas speak is in reference to money and how easy and religious it seemed but we come to understand greed was his master now, what is Judas's crime? In, in some ways, it could be summed up this way. He devalued the Savior. He devalued Christ. In fact, the Son of God, what, what price would you put on Jesus Christ? The price of a common slave? Are you crazy? Do you know what he is? You know what he's worth, and yet you see this one opportunity to get out, and so you get out while the getting's good. The whole thing's crumbling apart. Whatever his motivation was in that sense, he devalued Christ as being something other than who he was. If he saw him in his glory and he saw him in all of his majesty and his worth, he would be an utter fool to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Not only did he devalue the Savior, he devalued his own soul. You know that Jesus asking the people, what would you give in exchange for your soul? He uses this hypothetical situation. If you gain the whole world, the whole world was yours. Remember, Satan tempted Jesus, if you bow down before me, the nations can be yours. Let's just say Satan did that to you or me. But the outcome of this in receiving the world would be to be rejected by God and lose your soul. Would it be worth it? Would it be worth it? you could have it all, if you could have the, the car or the, the prestige or the job or all the worldly pleasures that you could, you're, you, could, you could take in, would it be worth losing your soul? Is not a man's soul worth more than even all the things that we chase after? I think the Ecclesiastes has something to say about that, doesn't it? As he pursues every pleasure under the sun and he says it's all what? Vanity. And he devalues his own soul because the truth is people sell out for a lot less than the world, don't they? It isn't even the world on the string that's being dangled in front of us. It's the, it's the, the, the temporary pleasures of, of, of sex or power or pride or prominence or whatever it is that we chase after. And in the end, The cost is our own soul. Well, not only did he devalue the Savior, he devalued, de devalued his own soul. 
devalued the reality, or I could say the longevity of eternity. You know, there is an old saying that life is short and eternity is long. How many of you believe that? Very fact of eternity. How long is it? Well, it's eternal, right? We, there's, no, there's no period. There's no end to that. And to think that in the, in the few matter, uh, the, the three and a half years that he had and the decisions that he made in that short period of time, maybe even before that, but in that short period of time, it, it, would, it would, and it is still continually being carried out, the consequences through all eternity. In fact, Jesus says in one sense it would have been better that he had not been born, and in another place he says he is going to his place, and that is hell. For all eternity. You know, there is a truth that there is a there is pleasure in sin for a season. But we must be reminded that all seasons come to an end. One day God will require of every man an account of his own life, his own soul, and what he's done. And, and eternity is a long time to bear under the consequences of that meeting. Here he devalued the reality or the longevity of eternity, his own soul, and of the Savior. He is the ultimate, Judas Iscariot, the ultimate fool. You say that's pretty harsh in some ways. But isn't it a, a tragedy which perpetually reminds us that giftedness and proximity to the church and Christianity and religion is not the same as being born again? It's not the same as being committed to Christ and trusting Christ. There's a reality that uh, in our day we live, and a one prominent minister used to say that the greatest place of evangelism has to be again in the local church because of that reality, but that many frequent church and many show outward conformity to some religious practice or whatever uh, they want to give themselves to, but they do not belong to Christ. They have never put their faith and trust in him, in him alone. They're still leaning or, or waiting or, or betting the odds or whatever it is going on in their mind. But, but if it's true within the 12, then it's true within the, in the rest of the body of Christ. Passage like this is a, is a great reminder that while the world may have and people may have nice things to show and achievements and even acts of kindness and giftedness, Paul stands as a call to all of us that we must be willing to lay aside all of those comforts and all of those confidence that we may win Christ. Isn't that what Paul did in Philippians? I count all those things for loss for the sake of gaining Christ. And by the way, that gain is much greater, much more fulfilling much more rewarding than all that Paul had previously had. So we see the disciples in the disguise. We saw Jesus knowing and proclaiming his betrayal. Thirdly, I want you to notice this. Jesus' compassion and commanding presence. Now, if we were laying out the events of John chapter number 13 and 14 in the upper room discourse, I think if, we, if you were like me, you would do it this way. Let's begin, guys, by, let me just tell you right off, one of you don't belong here. In fact, you need to get up and get on with it and do what you're going to do because you don't belong here. i got to wash these guys' feet and I'm not doing that to you. Is that how we would do that? You say you would. Maybe we wouldn't say it like that, but I think we probably would if we knew what he was going to do. Is it remarkable that you find this in the context of Jesus having humbled himself, taking a towel and wrapping himself, and getting down, washing the disciples' feet? Judas receiving in that upper room meal a place of honor you remember the disciples they fought over who's going to get your right hand and left side we have on one side the disciple whom jesus loved on his right side on the left side you have judas iscariot a place of honor among them so naturally and jesus going through washing his feet even the one who would spurn all sense of love and compassion that jesus had 
And yet Judas did benefit from the love of Christ, didn't he? Had he not seen much in three and a half years? Been blessed by, ate food that's been divided up in so many ways, you couldn't cut it another way in some way, you know, thinking, what a, what a remarkable event, Jesus walking on water and all that he witnessed, being in the very presence of the incarnate God, being talked to and, and looked upon and, and the kindness, the gentleness being served in many ways by God. You remember he said, I came to serve, not to be served. And, and, and Jesus served not just the multitude, but his own followers, including Judas. In fact, you, you see that perplexity, don't you, in the life of Jesus and his compassion. Even for those who don't deserve it. In fact, the truth is, none of us deserve the compassion and love of God, do we? Some of you may want to argue with that, but the truth is we're all at enmity with God in our sinful flesh, aren't we not? And yet Jesus, as he comes and looks at Jerusalem, who would be destroyed A.D. 70, and as he, he, he's entering into Jerusalem, and he weeps, doesn't he, for the destruction that's going to befall them. Sturdiness, yet compassion. In fact, Carson uh, notes the, the complexity of what's going on here with this and, and Judas having his feet washed and then Jesus handing him uh, the bread, the gentleness and courtesy implicit in giving such a morsel must not be lost in view, Carson says. It is more consistent with the picture of Jesus in this gospel and with the course of events in the life of Judas Iscariot. To think of this sob as a final gesture of supreme love. Then he goes on and says, Judas received the sob but not the love. Instead of breaking him and urging him to contrition, it hardened his resolve. The very fact, I think Carson is trying to say in handing the sob and exposing Judas was one more, one more opportunity to, to put aside his wicked plan instead of Repenting, broken over his sinful plan, and he was more resolved to do what Satan had put in his heart to do. Isn't it true that mankind, by and large, squanders the goodness and love of God? Just the general love in which he gives his creation, the blessings of family or friendship or pleasure or the thousand other things that God gives us, the very fact that he does not judge us at this very moment and end all of the nonsense we see going around us, is that not his long-suffering, forbearance, his general love for his creation? In fact, instead of, not only do we squander it, instead of turning Back with thanksgiving, we hold him in contempt. And the truth is, isn't it, that those who reject the gift of God's grace will have none in the end. Now, you know, there is something to be said here. This is not so far removed from the lesson of serving that we had seen earlier and last week, has it? Because we think serving, we think serving one another in this kind of reciprocal form. We serve because we're served by one another and we care for one another. Uh, and, and everyone we serve will kind of respond in a positive, kind of affirming manner. But it doesn't always happen that way, does it? In fact, oftentimes, many times, we find ourselves serving and, and having to respond to people who will not reciprocate kindness. Not that they cannot. Children, in some ways, sometimes, and, and there is a part of society that cannot reciprocate it. They don't have the capacity or whatever. But there are many times we face, the hardest times we face, that there are people who will not reciprocate. And yet, what do we do? How do we respond to them? Has not Jesus himself gave us an example to love, to pray for, and to trust God that he will repay and not take it upon ourselves. It's a hard, hard lesson to learn, isn't it, church? Because we think any act of goodness and kindness should be wholly accepted 
and it should be awesome. Instead of just a boot statue, we get the whole thing, you know? And yet it doesn't always happen that way. In fact, the disciples will find that true in their own lives as well. Serving will cost them. Not just in pouring themselves out to those who would receive their kindness, benefit from it, but to those who will reject it, spurn it, and even murder them for it. Now notice we said the compassion, but I want you to notice in closing this, the the command of Jesus. I find this remarkable. Verse 27 He gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're doing or what you're going to do, do quickly. And then notice the end of verse number 30. And it says, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. An interesting note by John preserved for us the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're introduced to the, to the oldest villain in the Bible, aren't we? Satan, back in Genesis 3. Uh, the significance of the word it was night just shows the work and the, the influence that was going on of Satan and his, uh, really his kingdom. The legions and the demons which he commanded in fact you have here this kind of two enemies of christ has risen up one motivated by greed of 30 pieces of silver or to get the what he can get while the getting's good and the other by his distorted nature and pride and yet they both sought the same end judas and satan it was dark because well sin was going to be judged it was dark because they were going to put the lord of glory to death it was dark because of all the events that were leading up to this and would flow from this when creation would condemn and murder the creator but did you notice the words that jesus doesn't enter into this darkness helplessly does he you say why does that matter Well, I think it matters for some reason because it reminds us that he is still in command. Remember, uh, in the garden, Peter swipes at a guy, you know, chops his ear off, old Peter. And uh, Jesus says, don't you think I could command angels, legions, to deliver me? I must drink the cup that the Father has given to me. Who's in control? Is Judas in control? Well, we know he's not in control because here we see in the text, not only is he not in control, but Satan has possessed him, entered into him, put into his heart earlier on that he would betray him. And and so Judas is clearly not in control of anything. The leaders of of Jerusalem, maybe they're in control. Satan himself in control. Who's who's in control in the middle of this, this transpiring and plotting of terrible forces the answer is Jesus, isn't it? <laughs> he commands Jesus, or he commands Judas, at the end of verse number 27, what you're going to do, do quickly. That's a get out and get going with your plan. And you almost think Judas was wondering how he's going to pull this off, Right? How's he going to get away? They're up here. They're doing the the Passover meal. How are they going to do all this? Well, Jesus will ensure that he has that open opportunity to do what his wicked heart has planned to do. In fact, we're reminded of John 10, 18. No one takes it from me, speaking of his own life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Do you see how, according to the wisdom and the power of God, Satan and Judas are just instruments to carry out the redemptive plan, what God has decreed? They are not sovereign. They are not all-powerful. 
I think that's true of the, the wickedness we see in the world today. It's a good reminder for us as a church when we're surrounded by, whether it's demonic activity, whether it is uh, Satan worship, whether it is the culture and all the perversion of, of uh, sexuality and all the things that's going on that threatens to overrun. None of these isms and, and movements are sovereign and all-powerful. God is in control. And if in the darkest hour of human history we see Jesus commanding the scene and the events and the the players that are going on, don't you think in this moment where providence is unfolding to that glorious moment where Jesus will be revealed from heaven and, and everything will be brought to his completed end that Jesus is still in control? Now we know that the Bible tells us that he has risen into heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father of God. We may think that the gospel is weak and powerless and that Christ is far removed and Christianity is is suffering loss. But the truth is God has secured its victory from beginning to end because he ever lives. Now that ever living is to make intercession for the saints. But it's also to carry out human history until it's appointed design end by God. God is in control. That's what I want you to see there. He's in control of all these movements and things which we don't understand. He's in control in all the things that we fear and overwhelmed by. He's in control in a society in our current context. It feels like it's going down the drain. Now, I know it's an unpleasant thought, but it's true, is it not? So where do we take comfort and solace when we see all this going on? We take it in the fact that Christ is king. Not just will be king, he is king. Even in his humility, it demonstrates his power and authority over his own life, his own death, and his resurrection. In fact, Martin Luther said it so provocatively that I'm just going to just quote him because it almost makes you scratch your head. Is that true when he says the devil is God's devil? He is not equal to God. He is not a creator of his own. He is only a distorter of what has been created by God. They are not the same. God is in control and he, in his power and in his might and out of his wisdom, uses even these great forces of darkness to carry out his decree and his plan. And you say, how does all that work? Well, I, I think there's a bit of a, a scratching of the head in the whole surface. We see it in the death of Christ, the betrayal of Jesus, uh, Judas, uh, bringing Jesus to a place of being crucified for the sin. For sin and his resurrection. So you see how all that plays out in that. Uh, there's a bit of mystery in some parts of that. But, but in another way, it brings us back to that promise in Romans 8 and 28, doesn't it? How do we know that God is able to work all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose? Because not all things are bright and cheerful. If we, if we go back from the large scale of things, right? The, the, the grand scheme of redemption history and all those things like that, can we take that same comfort that God is in command, he's in control when, when stuff in your life and my life are a train wreck? Is God in control? When waves hit you, when trials come, when, when heartaches come, when sickness comes, when, when offenses comes, when, when hurt and pain and stuff that isn't lifted easy, when providences that are dark as well as that are good, is God still commanding? Is Christ still in control? And the fact that he is gives us substance to that promise in Romans 8 and 28, doesn't it? Because he is in control. And because he is able to use these acts and does use these acts, even in our own lives of, of pain and sorrow and, and use these things for our good, conforming us into the image of Christ. Now, I just want to ask you this, is even ask my own self, does that offer you any measure of comfort? Yeah. 
that not only does Christ know what's going on in your life, not only does he know what you're facing now, but what you will face, and that he is in command, he is in control in the midst of them, in them, over them, for your good, does that bring you to a place to run to the throne of grace to find help in your time of need? Because you're not running to one who is impotent, powerless, who is oblivious to the sufferings you're facing. Well, the, the answer to all that, of course, is, and the biblical answer to all that, of course, is we know that, but sometimes it's not that easy, is it, church? And that's a beauty of him telling this lesson in front of the disciples in a group setting. Sometimes we need to hear this on an individual level, but sometimes we need to hear this in a, in a group setting as they looked around and saw each other's faces because as years go by, we need that one another, not only as we serve one another, but one great way we serve one another is by constantly reminding us of these things that we need to keep in front of us. Isn't that true? We may need other practical things in the middle of that, amen? Oh, but we do need to be pointed back to our great God and Savior who is in control, who knows, and who offers comfort. Now I want to just mention this morning as we close in word of prayer, there's a difference of being around Jesus and putting your faith and trust in him. Of being around or being familiar with Jesus and following him. And if you've never, you know where you are, you know what's going on in your life, but if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you reject God's grace, in the end you will be without God's grace. And right now you may think that's okay, but, but you still experience it by default, being in his creation, feeling the warmth of his son and his goodness around you, but all of that will be removed. Now is the accepted time. Now is the, the time in which you come. Turn from your sin, your own self-confidence, and put your faith and trust in him. If you've never done that, I'd love to take the Bible with you after the service and, and show you how you can be saved, how you can know that you've, you've been born again. And for those of you who are just life is tough right now, Jesus knows. Come to him. And find that grace and help in this time of need. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder uh, of your, your work and even the hard lesson as we look and scratch our heads at a, at a person like Judas. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning that that is sitting with us, that they have made their calling election sure, that they know that they've put their trust and faith in Christ. I pray that would be the first and foremost thing to be settled in their lives, even today, if it's not. Father, I know in a, in a thing like this, and as Jesus showed both the, the troubled spirit and yet the command and, and the faith even in that command, Lord, I pray that that would be encouragement to us. While our troubles are not as great, and that scene, they are great to us, help us to run to Christ and find that help we need in Jesus' name. Amen.